boosting commerce between states and nations is not just a path to solvency and growth, it's the only path. Hello and welcome to NPR's Planet Money. I'm Adam Davidson. And I'm Laura Conaway. Today is Wednesday, December 3rd. It's about 4.24 p.m. here in New York City. That was Commerce Secretary-designate Bill Richardson. You just heard the economy's new diplomat. Today on Planet Money, we're continuing our theme of the week, What is a Job? And we're going to hear from an economist on President-elect Barack Obama's plans for creating new jobs. Uh, maybe that's a fiction. We will learn. And from a grad student couple in Florida who are really nervous about getting a new job, whether President-elect Obama or someone else makes it for them. Yeah, there's a lot of that going on. First, give us a Planet Money indicator, Adam. Well, today's indicator is zero. Mm, embracing myself. Zero is how much positive news there was in today's beige book. The Federal Reserve puts out a lot of data all the time. Like, you know, you're constantly getting these Federal Reserve reports. Most of it's numbers on charts and like four people on earth understand them. But about eight times a year or not about eight times a year, they release this thing they call the beige book, which is actually written in English. You can you know, pretty much anyone could read it and make sense of it. It's anecdotal observations from around the country, from Federal Reserve offices in the in the 12 Federal Reserve banks around the country. Just basically, how's the economy doing out there without not data driven, but just anecdotally. Um, and generally, when you read this, there's a mix of good and bad news. Even the last one, which was in October in the middle of this crisis, there's some good news like energy was doing well. I think we all remember paying too much for oil. The mining sector was doing well. There's generally at least some hopeful signs. And there's no good news now. No, there is no good news in the report released today, which covers October and November. Everything, retail sales, tourism, service industry, manufacturing, energy, mining, all of them are either stagnant or, or dropping. Any other news? Well, there's big news that broke literally as we sat down to record this. We don't actually have too many details, but um, the Treasury apparently is mulling over a plan to uh, basically using Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac to lower the average mortgage rate for a new home to 4.5%. Wow, that's a chunk. I mean, I'm going to have to buy a house at some of these points. I guess that's what they want me to say, right? That's what they want yeah. all of us to say. Um, that's a full percentage point lower than the average rates now for 30-year fixed mortgages. Um, you know, I'm just going to very quickly, you know, we're going to have to learn a lot about the plan. We don't really know anything. We don't even know for sure that they're going to do the plan. It's just the Wall Street Journal's reporting that they're thinking about it. Um, I think this is going to upset a lot of people because, um, you know, how did we get in here in the first place? Way too low mortgage rates that encourage people to buy houses they can't afford. Also, um, you know, I keep hearing there's just too many houses out there and it's just going to take a while. So, I'm, you know, we'll, we'll talk to some smart economists and we'll try and figure out, does this make any sense? It, it, it seems to me... I don't know. We'll see. It's I don't want to say It's another amazing anything. big plan. I mean, we keep saying if this were any given average week, that would just be the biggest news you'd heard for a month. But anyway, here is some more news. Obama has been saying his stimulus plan will create 2.5 million jobs by 2011. Now, I'm sure that sounds great to people. 2.5 million jobs. My goodness. Maybe I'll get one of those. But a lot of economists you talk to say it really isn't so simple. The government doesn't just 
poof, create jobs out of nowhere and spending hundreds of billions of dollars trying to do that might not always make the most sense. Um, Planet Money's own David Kestenbaum talked to an economist of that view, Russell Roberts. He's a professor of economics at George Mason University. Well, I'm a bit of a skeptic. The money has to come from somewhere. If it comes from taxes, that means someone else in the economy will have less money to spend. But the idea is it won't come from taxes. It will come from borrowing. But even if we borrow the money, you have to ask the question, well, who's lending the money? Weren't they going to do something with that money? Couldn't they have lent it to other folks uh, in the private sector to expand jobs? Uh, so so this idea of government stimulus is going to be tested in a, in a magnitude probably it's never been seen before. You know, we had a $160 billion stimulus package last spring that didn't do very much. A lot of people said it was just too small. Well, now we're talking about $300 billion, maybe a $500 billion, maybe a trillion-dollar stimulus plan. We'll see if it works. You seem so nonchalant about that. I find it horrifying personally, uh, but I think it's got a political irresistibility. No president is going to be able to stand by and do nothing if unemployment starts to head towards 10 percent or worse. Why is it so horrifying to you? Uh, the idea that the government is going to decide where a trillion dollars of our economy is spent rather than uh, the rest of us deciding it is not to me a good sign. Uh, if the money is spent wisely, it'll be good. The odds that the government will spend it wisely to me is not so likely. Uh, so. Part of it will depend on how they hand the money back, whether they hand it, whether they stimulate the economy via infrastructure spending, which sounds like a nice idea but might be spent very badly as it has been in the past, whether it's spent in the form of tax cuts, rebates, whether it encourages people to work more just as a check in the mail. It's going to be interesting to see how it gets structured. So your argument is that uh, the market knows better what to do with the money than the government does. You don't trust the government to pick and choose. Well, it's not so much the market knows better as that I think I know better. Uh, you know better. Uh, the listeners out there know better what to do with the money. Uh, we're a $14 trillion economy roughly and the government spends about uh, $3 trillion of that right now and climbing. So as the share of the government gets larger and larger, the real productive stuff that we do gets decided by people in Washington rather than the rest of us. I hope they do a good job. They tend to be under political pressure to do things that are politically wise, not always the stuff that's economically wise. Does the government always choose poorly? No, not necessarily. There's some things the government does very well. But just to take an example, we're talking about bailing out Detroit and putting strings on it that they build a green car or an electric car or something like that. Uh, most consumers evidently don't want them at the price that they can be made at. They can make them cheaper. That'd be nice. But right now, they're not so good at it. If the government forces them to keep them alive on the condition that they build a certain kind of car, I really don't think that's the right way to decide which kind of car gets built. But there are people who say, look, this is going to be great. You know, We will finally have uh, the new generation of cars that will help wean us off uh, off gasoline. And, uh, you know, the market is very slow in doing it, even though it makes sense long term. And the government is just going to make that happen faster and we'll be world leaders. It'll be great. Well, it's imaginable that someday we'll run out of oil and we'll have to turn to a non-carbon based car. And there may be environmental reasons for doing it before that. But you don't want to argue that since it's going to come anyway, uh, it's good to have it now. The pace matters. You don't want to invest billions of dollars today for something that isn't really viable or valuable for another 50 or 60 years. Better to take those billions of dollars, do something else productive with them, rather than sink them into a technology that isn't going to be useful until then. It really is the issue. 
Does some of this come down to what school of economics you come from? I mean, I think the Keynesian school would say this is exactly the time the government needs to be spending money. It will make the economy grow. So we will, in the end, have to pay back the loans we made to, to boost the economy, but it'll be easier to pay them back. This is a great idea. And then there are people like you, I think more free market-oriented people, who say, no, no, the government really just often does not make good decisions. We should let the market make these decisions, and, and it knows better what to do with the money. And that there will be unseen and not so obvious counter-effects that will offset the benefits of the stimulus. But yeah, it is a different a different set of schools. Um, the Keynesian approach argues that the source of economic downturns is um, inadequate demand and if the government just spends enough, it will compensate for the lack of demand. The monitor school tends to argue that we need to stimulate the money supplies a way to get out of this. In theory, both of those can work. Uh, I would argue that in any one situation, the psychology is such that we don't have a very good idea of whether it will work. If we look at historical episodes, there are very few. The Great Depression happened once in uh, the 20th century. There was a Great Depression in 1894 that was also very serious. We don't have good data about it. So trying to figure out what's going to happen now based on something that happened once before is inher inherently ambiguous. Yeah, that's my question. You would think that we would have – two of these schools would have lost, one would have won, and we would know the answer. Yeah, unfortunately, there's a lot of what I call ex post storytelling. You know, after the Great Depression ended, there were certain myths that were created, some of which had an element of truth, some of which were pure myths about what got us out of it. But in general, we we're flying by the seat of our pants, and anybody who says otherwise is just uh, is whistling in the dark. Will we know in the end who's right years from now? I don't think so. Uh, that's, oh, come on, that's sorry. a terrible answer. Yeah, no, I think it's the truth, though. And in many ways, I see economics as a way of thinking, as a way of framing questions, as a language for approaching the complexity, but certainly not for solving it or understanding it thoroughly. It's, it's, um, I think it's beyond the, uh, the ability of our, of our profession. You made a very funny face there. <laughs> well, I'm going to lose my union card, but we don't have a union, so it'll be okay, I guess. Thank you to Russell Roberts at George Mason University for that. By the way, I really love his uh, podcast. We should link to it, Econ Talk. It's each week an hour, delves really deeply into some economic issue or other. And it, it's sort of in the general feel of Planet Money, very clear, very easy to understand. Um, speaking of economics and economists, it is time for a... Economist House Call. So this is one of our favorite segments. We favorite. get... We, yeah, we get average folks, we get our listeners, our, our audience on the phone with an economist who can put their personal situation in a global context. This isn't personal financial advice. It's like personal economic conceptualization of your life. Is that too sort pretentious? Sort of more existential. Yeah. So the economist you'll hear is our house caller, uh, one of our very favorite economists, Simon Johnson of MIT. He is, used to be the chief economist at the IMF. And this house call came from Phil and Jen Sandifer. They're grad students at the University of Florida. They own their own home, amazingly enough, and they're starting to get nervous about where they will end up working when school is over. The job market is definitely a, a big concern. I mean, I'm in the humanities, and humanities PhDs are badly overproduced. I think uh, nationwide there is a 25% or so higher rate. Uh, my department actually does better than most and that most PhDs actually get, you know, professor jobs, but it's still just a brutal job market and it gets a lot worse when you're trying to get a second academic hire in a field uh, at the same general place. 
and the other problem that we have is that we put a lot of work into the house. Uh, you know, so we have a lot of credit card debt because we're trying to do this on not a whole lot of money. We have enough to get by, but not a lot to deal with plumbing disasters, of which we have had many. Uh, so we're trying to make sure that we are going to be able to sell this house. And luckily, Gainesville has been pretty isolated from or insulated from all those effects of the housing market crashing. But we're still worried about recouping the costs of what we put into the house in the last two years. Now, also, Simon, oh. Simon, you... Uh you in in most of these economist house calls you always applied people getting more education does that apply to phd's in english <laughs> uh yes abso- absolutely i i think you know phil knows very well that humanities uh has been a tough has been a tough market um for a long time it it's not new um by any means that it's hard to get a, a job um, with your PhD, but uh, an academic job. But on the other hand, uh, PhDs in general do very well in this country. And if people are flex, I mean, obviously you want to get an academic job, that's great, and, and I encourage that. But you know, people with lots of education in this country do very well because uh, you pick up a lot of general uh, human capital um, a- along the way. And I rather suspect, you know, Phil may turn out to be a, a big entrepreneur in web comics or something uh, before he's absolutely uh, finished. I, 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 I'm not sure. Um, but chemistry, I mean, two PhDs sounds to me to be a, a, great, a, a great thing. And owning, owning real estate in a university town um, also strikes me as being uh, not particularly bad. I don't know the details uh, of, of Gainesville, but typically uh, university university towns are, are obviously based on the you know the student population and the incomes of the professors and the staff, and and I think that sector looks looks pretty robust. I don't think that the long term uh, future of universities is, is at all in question right now. Uh, Jen, I'm guessing your potential job market's a little better than your husband's. Is that fair? It is. Definitely a little better. If I were willing to work in industry, which I would if I had to, to help support our family, I don't want to. I want to teach chemistry. Uh, then it would be even more wide open. But yes, in general, it is a little bit easier for chemistry PhDs to get academic jobs than English PhDs, in part because some of them do leave for industry. Phil, what are you writing your dissertation on? Um, I'm working on um, media studies on um basically demonstrations of new technology. I just finished up a chapter on 3D movies, and I'm moving on to uh, writing about the Nintendo Wii. I do a lot of film and media studies stuff. I, I thought there was more to fill than just uh, 19th century English literature. <laughs> well, it strikes me that that, you know, you, you certainly have an option of, of going into the entertainment industry or, or some kind of uh, media job. Is that something that you'd be open to? It's certainly not my first choice. I mean, certainly, you know, next year I'm going to go on the job market for academic jobs. I'm going to apply to English and communications departments. There's no shortage of jobs in these areas, at least no more so than any other area in the humanities. Um, If that doesn't work out, I'll drop back five and punt from there. But, you know. But that's what you want. Uh, Simon, academic jobs are definitely definitely what I want. Is this... As economists say, are these jobs cyclical in that – I mean, I, I, you know, public universities and, and private universities have pretty steady funding, I would think. I mean, private universities often have a large endowment. It, are are academic jobs dependent on the business cycle like uh, like some of the other people we've talked to in the Economist House Call? Well, they can be at least in the short term because public universities uh, do, uh, you know, receive money from from uh, from the state uh, typically, 
And it is possible uh, that, you know, given what we're, we're looking at right now, there will be some cuts in, in those funding. I do think that one of, the, one of the big steps the federal government is going to take over the next couple of months is act to replenish uh, state coffers, because that's a, it's pretty obvious <laughs> that we're heading into a big recession. It's not particularly the fault of, of state governments. And this is quite a good way um, for the federal government to get money out and get it spent well. So I think that will actually help to some degree but if it's you know it could be the case that um, some departments will have freezers some department actually know some departments and some universities that have hiring freezers already because um, they just want to be cautious and hold back and so the t- you know timing may 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 matter uh, but Phil sounds a little bit flexible on the timing side so that, that that's 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 not the worst thing um and actually I can ask a question if I'm not wrong also when you're in a bad job market a lot of people will go back for more degrees which ends up creating some amount of increase in demand in academia, no? Absolutely correct. Um, and it's a, it's a good thing to do uh, in, in, a, in a recession. If you get laid off and, and you have uh, the, the money and the interest, getting a degree um, is, is, is a great idea. I'm not sure they all go get English degrees, Phil, but, but, but well, we can put that to one side. Um, the, the other thing, of course, is... is should, would lead to an increase in hiring, at least theoretically, no? Uh, yeah, it should certainly keep the jobs, absolutely. Or you get some increase in class size probably, but it, it, it certainly um, it keep, keeps things uh, on, on a much more even keel. The other thing, of course, is, is demographics. So we have a good demographic in this country. Actually, we have a lot of uh, kids who are going to want to go to college. Um, and we have a lot of uh, immigration that, that, you know, I think is going, to, is going to continue. And that's very good for the university sector. Now, the value of having a university and higher education in the U.S. just continues to go up and up and up. I, I think that um, promoting, uh, finding ways to promote and support uh, edu- education is uh, going to be, is now, and is, is going to be at the very top of the agenda of any, any, any president, or any politician, actually, in this country. Great. Phil and Jen, does, have we reassured you at all? Are you... Um, yeah, the, uh, it, it's feeling a bit better about things, I think. Yeah, I feel like everything is word of mouth on the whole, uh, on the, the fact that being in academia is kind of more insulated from all of this economic crisis. And it's all well and good for a whole bunch of English PhDs or math PhDs or chemistry PhDs to say that, but it's nice to hear it from an economist. Yeah, I mean, mostly we talk to other paranoid grad students who are, you know, trying to reassure themselves that they'll get jobs <laughs> while drinking heavily. So, you know, hearing from a professional is good. Great. All right. Well, Phil and Jen, thanks so much for calling. Thank, Thank you. you. Thanks to Simon Johnson, our house-calling economist, and to Phil and Jennifer from Florida for sharing your stories. Keep them coming. Send us an email at planetmoney at npr.org or check us out on Facebook. It's all linked on the blog, npr.org slash money. Adam, before we go, can I get you to take just one quick question? Of course. I love taking listener questions. Okay. I have actually with us now Michael A. Goldsmith. He has a question. It has to do with your segment, Adam, about buying a hot dog and creating money by buying things on credit. Michael, did I get that right? That's, that's pretty much it. Uh, the, uh, the, the question I had is that um, so the government prints money. I was at a tour of the Mint last summer when I was in Washington with my family, and I know that a lot, bulk of what they print goes to replace worn-out currency, but some of it is, is new currency. There's clearly more currency around than there was 50 years ago. But how does this currency get into circulation? I don't see how that connects back to this creation of money through buying the hot dog and so forth. I just have images of them printing all this money and dumping it off of the back of a truck somewhere. 
Sure. And this I know when I first started learning about economics was confusing for me too. This, this, you know, we think of money as if currency is the main thing in money. Uh, But currency really is one of the manifestations of money. And I think maybe in a way far too much attention is paid to it. So so the, the basic answer is, so how, how did they get new money into the bank, the system overall? Do they just give it to somebody? Well, no. Every bank that deals with dollars, so not just U.S. banks, banks all over the world, have an account at the New York Federal Reserve Bank. There are some small banks that technically have accounts with other banks, but basically every bank has an account um, with the New York Federal Reserve Bank. Banks have their own banking account at the Fed. And... Um, that is an amount of just like your money at the bank that's an amount of money that's electronically stored on the fed's account books um and any bank whether it's a giant bank like citibank or it's your small corner bank has a variety of needs for currency for example right now around christmas season there's a lot more hunger for actual physical money coins and bills than there is at other times of the year um I learned that on Fridays, there's more currency in circulation because people go to the ATM on Fridays so they can have money to blow over the weekend and then they blow it and then they don't have as much currency during the week. So uh, on a day-to-day basis, on a month-to-month basis, and certainly on a year-to-year basis, the sort of global need for physical paper currency or coin currency changes. So any given bank is constantly assessing how much actual um, currency the uh, uh, their customers will need. And it's a very simple matter. They go to the Fed and they say, hey, I got a billion dollars in my Fed account. I'd like to take 20 million in currency. And so the Fed reduces their account by 20 million and gives them 20 million in currency, just like when we go to the bank and ask for money. Um, they can also say, hey, I have a whole bunch of extra money left over. They might do this in January and say, boy, I got like 50 million $20 bills lying around that I just don't think my customers are going to need. So they just hand it to the Fed. and uh, the In a truck or what? Yeah, I mean, in an armored stuff. truck. Yeah, in an armored truck. But let's yeah. say your bank is in Omaha. Do you drive the truck? all the way to New York and then throw it out the back? Um, no. I actually don't know how – I mean – Ha! I don't know the answer to that. So I don't know the physical way you get it. But um, Michael, but, did we help you? Yeah, I think so. If I, if I maybe summarize what I think I, I got from this is that the, the central bank the, – the currency, of course, um, needs to ebb and flow as the need for the physical manifestation of wealth uh, – becomes more and becomes greater or less the wealth itself grows over time as as you guys discussed last week but as as what you're saying is that the the need for the currency to represent that wealth ebbs and flows and of course as the wealth grows the, those those flows become larger and that's where the additional currency comes into play and come the need comes in and it all flows out of the central bank, central bank where these deposits um, have been made by the bank. Right. And, and and the way the central bank creates new money, that has nothing to do with paper currency. They create new money through what we know as monetary policy. And that's generally these, you know, electronic digits on, on people's bank balances where the Fed uses newly created money to buy assets. But that has nothing to do with currency. Michael, thank you. Thank you very much. And uh, thank you. That is going to be it for today's Planet Money. So I want to thank everyone for listening. I'm Adam Davidson. And I'm Laura Conaway. I still think I got a little situation. So listen to me, sister. Listen, mommy, you can help. 